Pledge your $50 today and lock in your free weekend pass to the Left Forum, taking place in Brooklyn June 28th through June 30th. That's the 28th through the 30th in Brooklyn. Go to give, then the numeral 2, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and search Left Forum. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. See you at the Left Forum. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Waking Up. I'm Celeste Katz sitting in for Juliana Forlano. About 64 degrees in New York right now, going up to about 83. We're glad you're here. We'll have another guest coming up in just a moment. But first, here is our Friday commentary from Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Report. A number of Democratic presidential candidates are taking on Joe Biden for his role in passing the 1994 crime bill that greatly accelerated mass black incarceration. The former vice president is the favorite of the corporate media and the big business-oriented leadership of the Democratic Party. He's the only Democratic hopeful that seems capable of denying Bernie Sanders the nomination. But Sanders also voted for the crime bill, reluctantly, he says, and only because it included provisions to curb violence against women. But Senators Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio are highlighting the crime bill to put distance between themselves and Joe Biden, who claims that the bill did not contribute to mass incarceration. Kamala Harris disagrees. She said the bill introduced a federal three strikes law and funded the building of more prisons in the states. New Jersey's Cory Booker described the bill as awful, citing the incentives it gave states to raise mandatory minimum sentences and to build more prisons. New York's Mayor de Blasio called the bill that Biden championed a huge mistake and said it was one of the foundations of the current mass incarceration crisis. The fact-checkers at PolitiFact found that mass incarceration was already raging when Biden co-sponsored the 1994 bill, but that the legislation did provide the money to further expand the nation's prison population. Black people in the United States have always been over-incarcerated. From the perspective of the slave, the South was one big prison labor camp, a place you risked your life to escape from. That's prison. Since emancipation, blacks have always been over-imprisoned. But modern mass black incarceration begins around 1972. The U.S. government responded to the civil rights and black power movements of the 60s with draconian drug laws, militarized police, and hyper-surveillance of black communities, an infrastructure designed to imprison as many black people as possible. From the early 1970s to 1994, the U.S. prison population more than tripled, skyrocketing from 300,000 to over a million. And that was before Joe Biden threw his weight behind the 1994 crime bill. Then, after the bill passed, the prison population soon doubled, quickly reaching two million. As PolitiFact reports, Joe Biden was always a throw-em-in-jail kind of politician. 
According to Ed Chung of the Center for American Progress, Biden was a sponsor and in many cases the primary architect of every single federal bill in the 80s and 90s that exacerbated and continued mass incarceration. The United States imprisons far more people than any other nation on earth, more than China, which is three times as populous. The U.S. criminal justice system is so harsh because it's an outgrowth of slavery and designed to keep black people in social lockdown. But Joe Biden is unapologetic about his major contribution to the ongoing crime of mass black incarceration. He doesn't need to be sent to the White House. He needs to be sent to a re-education camp and kept there until he admits his crimes. And then kept there some more because he is a recidivist racist. I'm Glenn Ford, Black Agenda Report. And this is listener-sponsored, non-commercial WBAI, New York. No mistaking that one. Of course, Ella Fitzgerald with Duke Ellington take the A-Train. You are listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And I just had to play that one or more to the point have Michael play it because I just do the talking and he does the working. Uh, To bring in our next guest, excited to bring in a guy that you probably... No by face, but since this is radio, you'll have to settle for the voice. Jose Martinez is a reporter at The City. He is a senior writer covering transportation. City is a new website dedicated to investigative journalism about New York. Previously spent six years covering transit on air at New York One, putting together some uh, some pretty fascinating stories about the ins and outs of our transit system. Also a veteran of the New York Post and of the Daily News where he had the the uh, misfortune to sit pretty next uh, pretty close to me for a, a number of years but seems to be doing okay. So uh, Martinez, welcome to WBAI. Celeste, my dear friend, good to have uh be on your show. A pleasure to talk to you. Why, thank you. Well, thank you for uh, waking up early. And uh, I don't know, do you guys, I think you you might even be calling from, from out of town. Do you take a, a train early to get out of town? or? Uh, don't tell anyone. I actually traveled somewhere by a form of transportation that was not a train. But yes, did get out of town. But sadly, I'm not in town for the debut of the Omni fare payment system. Funny that you should mention the Omni fare payment system, because I think that's why I have you on the show. What is it? When is it? It's today, right? It debuts today on just a certain portion of the MTA system. Uh, This is afternoon, 
after 12 o'clock. And if you've gone through some subway stations on the 4, 5, and 6 line, uh, you may have noticed at some turnstiles uh, a new form of reader, some device-type thing by the turnstiles. And what that is is where you can now tap in using the Omni fare payment system. It's only going online today afternoon on the portion of the 4, 5, and 6 that extends from 42nd Street uh, Grand Central down to uh, Atlantic Avenue Barclay Center in Brooklyn and on the Staten Island uh, bus bus routes. But this is phase one of a rollout that's going to take a few years, and uh, it's the beginning of the end for the Metro card. So the, down with that pesky swipe that uh, really seems to confuse so many out-of-towners here. It kind of confuses me sometimes, too. I'm like, I know I have money on this thing. And it's like, swipe again, swipe again. I was like, is this personal, or is you, you having an issue? You having a bad day? So, I don't know. I, I don't think it's just the out-of-towners. But clearly, there was, you know, quite clearly, I would say, there's some issue going on with the Metro card that made the MTA decide, like, this ain't it. Something had to change. What, what, was, what do you think was the final straw? Well, it's, it's, it's out with the swipe and in with the tap. And, you know, this is not exactly uh, keeping up with the times for the MTA. Uh, other cities like uh, London, Transport for London with its Oyster card, or San Francisco with its Clipper card have had this type of technology in place for years. And it's an easier way of doing things because, it's just a tap and go, or you can reload through your phone, or you can use a credit or debit card. So it, it offers more options, but this this phase that's getting started today, it's it's really just uh, what the MTA calls a pilot program. So it's it's at, for now, it's going to be available only on a certain stretch of the system, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, a uh, section of the four, five, and six, and it's in its paper ride uh, for now. Okay. Well, uh, eventually you're gonna you're gonna see more options. You're gonna have online options. Now you just have a contactless credit card that you can tap at a turnstile, uh, or or your phone, uh, or the the paper ride card. If you're just joining us, this is Waking Up on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz, sitting in for Juliana Forlano, and we're talking to Jose Martinez, senior reporter at The City, where he covers transportation. And uh, Martinez, so you said that obviously this is only going to be operating on part of the system. kind of makes sense to me because it seems like a lot of the time only part of the system is operating. Uh I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, particularly this tweet that I saw the other day. Maybe you saw it, too, from uh, Kate Hines over at WNYC, actually. And she was at the uh, she was getting off of one train, I think it's 79th Street, and two trains unloaded and people just couldn't get out of the station. And the platform is packed and people are are stuck in there. We don't, is this is the Omni system going to alleviate any of the issues of people getting in and out of stations, or does it just make it easier to pay for the privilege of being trapped on the platform? Well, I think those were people trying to get, get out of the station, but it should because... Because I thought you only had to pay it, to get out of New Jersey. Yeah, if, if you have the, the, the tap-in system, it, uh, supposedly it's designed to be a little quicker. Uh, there won't be... Uh, the issues of uh, the, the botched MetroCard swipe. I, I can't tell you 
uh, how much time I spent uh, when I was at New York One shooting video of people botching the swipe. You, you know, as a television reporter, you just want to see everyone run through smoothly, go through efficiently, and no, constantly the thing would... Uh, as a television reporter, as a, as a human being, I want the thing to work so I can get where I'm going. Of course. <laughs> and you, you, I, I also, anytime a politician tries to use the Metro card, remember Hillary Clinton trying to swipe, and she tried that thing in every possible direction, and she didn't know what she was doing. I've seen Chuck Schumer botch the swipe. I've seen Bill de Blasio botch the swipe. Uh, they're not fooling us. <laughs> they're clearly not regular subway riders. But uh, it's got some issues. It's got some technology issues. And this is a more modern technology that the MTA has been working on, putting into place for a long time. So the goal is to uh, give people more options. You don't need to have a bank account. You don't need to have uh, a credit card. Uh, you can just buy the card if you want to keep it as is. But the technology hope is that it's more efficient, that it's smoother, and that, that the MTA can catch up to these other cities that have had this type of fair payment technology in place for many years. So is eventually the idea is that there will be no more Metro card. The Metro card will go the way of the, the token. I can make it into like some earrings and sell it on Etsy or this is the end or will there still be a choice of ways to pay for, for using the, the subway or the as, bus system? As, as with the token, this is a, a, a going to be phased in over time, the Omni system that the MTA is debuting uh, today. So the Metro card will go away for good by 2023 and if you remember if you remember with the subway token it was it was several years i believe until 2004 and that's several years after the introduction of the metro card uh before it went away but you know you always had luddites like myself i i ended up using the token until the last possible day uh and and then i jumped on board with the metro card and i realized how silly i had been for not jumping on board with the Metro card. But yeah, there's still plenty of time to phase out the Metro card to uh, get people acclimated to all the options they'll have available to them. And is there going to be, uh, if, if this is more efficient, as hopefully it is, if it works better, if it makes the system run more smoothly, do you foresee maybe a cut in the fare or a freeze in fares, or am I going to be charged extra for the privilege of, of tapping instead of swiping? No, there, there are possibilities in play um, for that. It hasn't been, it's not anything that, that we're at that stage yet, but other cities with this type of technology can do things like that. Um, and, and another thing I should mention that is eventually going to happen, but mm-hmm. that won't be until 2021 or so is that uh, the Omni fare payment system will expand not, not only to, to be limited not only to the subway and the bus, but to the commuter railroads. So if you're riding the LIRR or Metro North, you will have regional connectivity among those different systems that the MTA operates through the use of this new fare system. So it's, it's really opening up some doors, and, and connecting uh, the system, the entire transportation system, uh, in a way that hasn't really existed. So that's interesting. So basically, once you're, once you're in the system with, the, with Omni, you could, 
I, I don't know. Give us an example. You, you could go from uh, so Tarrytown. You get on the the train, or the Metro North at like Tarrytown or Spite and Dival or wherever you get on, right? Correct. And then you transfer over. So if you're you're taking Metro North down from Westchester County, let's say, and you get off at 125. Uh, no need to, to switch over to the Metro card at that point. If you're then jumping on the four train at, at 125th Street, uh, just you're you're right in with the uh, with the Omni. And the the other thing is, and, and you know, there will obviously be issues of, of trust with this, but you can uh, quite simply load up your card from your phone don't need to go to a metro card machine uh i, I did this uh in san francisco last year on my clipper card i had to put a few bucks on that card which is a tap and go system so just like that you know added a few bucks and then i was ready to go so uh it, it avoided me the time of going to a station uh, dipping my atm card in and, and and reloading uh the clipper card and having to touch the thing Having to That's touch, it. having to touch the buttons to put in like your pin number or whatever. That's correct. Okay, because after I saw that, let me ask you this: is a totally separate. But speaking of when you go into the station to reload your Metro card or to get a new card to add value, whatever it is, um, there was a video a while back of a rat in the card return slot or the change return where you get the receipt. You know, the little window. As, a, as an expert in public transportation in New York City, was that real? <laughs> I've seen enough of those videos to know to be immediately leery of such things. And the MTA did hint very strongly that it was a stunt. And again, I, I that, that, that sets off red flags for me because something like that can play virally. Mm-hmm. But you have to wonder, come on, is this real? Yeah, well, I, look, I mean, when I saw it, I thought to myself, this that's impossible. The, I think the funniest line I saw about it was, if, if that's what came out in the, uh, you know, the, if that's the change, what the, hell, what the hell did somebody put in the machine in the first place, you know? Yes. Which I, Something which, went very wrong. Yeah, extremely. If, 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 that's, if that's legit. Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I didn't seem too legit to me, but... Um, what other joys do we have going on in the uh, in the world of public transit while I while I have you? Anything new with the the bus, uh, the train, ferry, anything like that? Well, the bus is uh, the, the big thing going on in Busland is that the redesign that's uh, started on the Staten Island Express buses that's now spreading out to other boroughs, taking place eventually in the Bronx and Queens before going elsewhere. In the city, all of that is a goal to, to speed up the country's slowest buses, which are New York's buses. Uh, we should be proud. Uh, because <laughs> ridership day. has been, been cratering on the buses for years. So the goal is to get things moving a little bit more quickly to bring some of the ridership back. But that's a, a challenge given the amount of uh, congestion that we have on city streets right now. And thus, congestion pricing, which, of course, will take effect in 2021. And we're 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 going to be covering all of that stuff uh, at the city. Uh, it's it's an ex- exciting time to be covering transportation. Always is, and 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 also to be doing it at, at a place like where I am now. 
So if people want to read more of your work or read more about the city, because you guys cover not just transit, but you cover pretty much every aspect of, of city government there. You guys do a lot of digging. Where can people find you and where can they find your work and more about the city? We're online at thecity.nyc. That's thecity.nyc. Uh, all of us are uh, on social media as well. The city's Twitter feed where we uh, post many of our articles. Uh, that is at the city NY. Uh, our, our mascot who's gotten a lot of uh, attention is Nelly the Pigeon. But, uh, you know, hopefully our work will, will allow us to get a lot more attention now that we uh, have finally debuted. Uh, that was in April that we were up and running. So it's, it's great. But yeah, we've, we've got it all covered. We've got some really good city reporters, people I've worked with in the past at the New York Post, uh, at New York Daily News, even even at New York One. So it's it's a solid newsroom, and uh, uh, we are having fun. And like I said, covering transportation, the number of stories are really limitless. You know, there's so much going on. You have the, the decline of the taxi industry. You have the mayor's pet transit projects of the BQX and the ferries. You have struggles of the subway system and the bus system. Uh, I'd never covered transit until I started at New York One in 2013, and it's a great beat. It's a fascinating beat, and it's a great time to be covering it. So I'm, I'm really excited about the chance to do uh, some longer-form reporting and some media reporting uh, at this new venue. One last question for you, Martinez. Uh, Second Avenue Subway, am I going to live to see this, or uh, am I out of luck? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, That's the bet now I, I I would bet against seeing it uh, all the way downtown to Hanover Square in lower Manhattan uh, in my lifetime or that of uh, a possible second or third generation that's that's a long ways off but I would not bet against seeing the queue someday extend perhaps even in the next decade up to 125th Street so there would be you stops at 106, at 116, then the link to 125, which would also connect to the Metro North there and the chance to use your Omni or whatever we're paying with whenever the Second Avenue's second phase gets built uh, will allow you to connect to, to, to the Metro North and, uh, and between the subway and Metro North. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to have you back on to talk about the progress, and we'll see how the Omni system works out, whether people love it, hate it, or otherwise. Uh, Jose Don't be Martin. confused by it, I'm, I'm sure, but uh, it, it starts afternoon, and you know now those machines that you've been seeing, they'll finally be in use. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll have you back to, uh, to give it a review. Uh, Jose Martinez, transit reporter for the city. Thanks for joining us here on WBAI. My pleasure. And we will be right back with another great guest. Stick with us. This is, I was going to say this is Driving Forces, but that's my other show. This is Waking Up on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org.
little rush for you here on Waking Up. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz. I am your host until 8 o'clock here, and we are happy to bring you up our next guest to help us figure out what's going on in the wonderful world of Washington politics and national politics. That's Elaine Quijano. She is an anchor for CBSN, the CBS News 24-hour digital network, and a correspondent for all CBS News broadcasts and platforms. I, I remember uh, actually seeing her in action uh, way back when she was the moderator for the 2016 vice presidential debate that was between Mike Pence and Tim Kaine back in uh, beautiful Farmville, Virginia, as I recall. So uh, uh, interesting experience there. I've been following your work for quite a long time. Elaine, thanks for joining us here on uh, Waking Up this morning. Oh, pleasure to be with you. 2016, what a simple time that was. I know. I can't believe we're actually getting nostalgic about that. That uh, really says something about life in this business, right? It does. It does. We joke all the time that, you know, it's been an amazing year, and that's just one week. Uh, with the amount of news that comes our way, it definitely uh, it feels like a whirlwind a lot of times. So maybe let's just start off at uh, with with the big stuff here, see that the president has been mildly busy on Twitter and elsewhere talking about what he thinks or doesn't think of the Mueller report and the subsequent comments by the special counsel himself. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you think, uh, what, what can we divine from his reaction to Mueller, uh, from what you've seen? So it's really been so fascinating to watch all of this unfold because... Um, you know, clearly this is not an issue that he has shied away from. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, f- folks kind of conventional wisdom would dictate that uh, if you have something uh, like this that comes to an end and you have other good things to talk about, um, that sort of dwelling on something like like this is, is is not necessarily what you might expect from a president, but of course this president is unconventional in so many ways. And so uh, bringing it up has been uh, something he's done. It's been something he's not shied away from. And it's something that, frankly, we're likely to hear as the weeks and months pass heading into 2020. Um, we've heard it from him. We've heard it from administration officials continuing uh, to repeat the no collusion, no obstruction. Uh, in fact, it was just yesterday that my colleague, CBS News White House correspondent Paula Reed, uh, was asking the president, in fact, about his reaction uh, to what we heard from Robert Mueller himself. I mean, first of all, what an extraordinary moment that was. Right. To hear the voice of the man who after nearly two years, right, we had not even heard his voice for the duration of this investigation to come out and essentially, with a verbal highlighter, (laughs) underscore the points that he wanted uh, to make sure were not lost um, for those who may not have had the chance to read the entire 448-page report. Uh, So... That, of course, as we saw, prompted the Twitter reaction uh, from the president. And Paula Reed, my colleague, was asking the president about that. And again, that's where we heard 
the same line, no collusion, uh, you know, no charges, no uh, obstruction. And it, it, again, is a preview, I think, of what it is that we're going to see and hear from this president and from his administration here in the months ahead. He seems to be pretty convinced that uh, he's been completely exonerated in, in every way, shape and form. I'm not entirely positive that's exactly what the Mueller report said. I Correct me if I'm wrong. No, well, I mean, it, that's the thing that Mueller himself, again, underscored with his appearance. You know, what's so notable about that is the fact that Mueller felt compelled to do that, to stand in front of cameras, taking no questions, but choosing those words very carefully and ensuring that there was, or trying to ensure, rather, that there was no misinterpretation of what he meant um, and why it is that he, in his view, was not able to come to a conclusion about obstruction of justice. He literally spelled that out, what was in his report, um, and obviously indicates uh, some disagreement um, that he had with the way in which his work was characterized. So uh, for him to come out again and and to say, you know, the, the fact is we would have said, right, if we were, um, if, we, if we didn't find anything, um, if we were able to clear, we would have said so, um, to paraphrase the, the special counsel. But so that in and of itself was an extraordinary moment, I thought. And, you know, spelling out the fact that he felt it was not within his purview to come to a conclusion about the obstruction of justice charge, um, I think it's something that, you know, a lot of folks now are looking to Congress. What is the next move there? Um, and, and so you have this debate that's been sort of reignited because members of Congress, of course, uh, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, while there has been a push for impeachment, she has made very clear that she wants to proceed with caution and to sort of continue the process that they're on, which is these various committees' investigations to see what comes of those. And and yet you have, of course, 2020 approaching, and so you have 2020 candidates um, jumping in and weighing in, um, and the calls for impeachment seem to be growing. So all of this to say is, you know, we're sort of just getting into it now, and you know, the next immediate question is, uh, are we going to see Robert Mueller testify? And from what I understand, our folks on Capitol Hill tell me that those negotiations, which have been continuing, are still ongoing uh, as to format and, and whether or not um, they want to do this in an open kind of fashion. Um, but you heard from the special counsel himself. He's felt like he said all he has to say. He said, the report is my testimony. Um, really signaling that he's not inclined to go beyond what is in the four corners of the 448-page report. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Waking Up. I'm Celeste Katz, and we're speaking with Elaine Quijano. She is an anchor for CBS News, including for CBSN, the 24-hour digital network. So, Elaine, now that we're talking about Congress, that's a good segue for me because uh, 
impeachment. Every week we're talking about impeachment, whether it's going to yeah. go anywhere, as you say. Now, uh, some people are, are essentially saying on the part of the Democrats, look, this is what will happen to them with their base or what will happen to the people who come down on the wrong side of that in uh, this very crowded field of Democrats who are seeking the nomination to go up against Trump. But at the same time, if the Senate is still in the hands of Republicans, isn't this kind of a, a non-starter? Are you talking to people about kind of that dilemma and whether it's it's worth going there even just for the the optics of it, essentially? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It's interesting. We had um, on our program Red and Blue um, the, um, folks who have been sort of taking the temperature of those lawmakers on Capitol Hill who have spelled out exactly what you've just mentioned. So there is this concern that there is um, the end goal may not ultimately politically serve their their purpose and that uh, Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats have, in fact, um, been victorious uh, in court, at least these latest rounds, when it comes to you know, trying to get access to, for instance, a president's uh, you know, financial records in, in other areas as well. Um, we were talking on CBSN last night to uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, about a number of things, but I asked him about this question of impeachment. He says, I think it would backfire. Um, he thinks that that's not a strategy politically that Democrats should pursue, which, you know, puts them a little bit at odds with, or a lot at odds, rather, with, with some of the other 2020 candidates who are now, after Robert Mueller's statement, uh, saying very clearly that they think impeachment is something that needs to, uh, needs to be pursued. So um, you're seeing this split play out because the question remains, you know, to, to what end uh, will Democrats pay a price politically for pursuing an impeachment charge? Um, and on the other hand, you have uh, Democrats who feel very strongly that there needs to be a very clear uncovering of facts. And that can only come with the actual opening of impeachment proceedings. And there is an impatience. There's a restiveness, certainly, that some uh, lawmakers are feeling that pressure. But, you know, there are so many scenarios that could play out. So for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, what we've seen is a consistent uh, sort of steady approach uh, to kind of continue on with the way in which things have unfolded. And so far, at least, uh, she's been able to kind of corral all of those interests and to uh, kind of hold her her uh, Democrats together on this. Whether or not that changes, you know, that's what we're going to be watching for. Um, but there are certainly some Democrats in the House who they were elected in Trump districts. You know, Nancy Pelosi is very mindful of that. Mm. Uh, there may not be the appetite, and there's a vulnerability there that she's got to balance with those increasing calls. Uh, for impeachment um, by some de other Democrats. So it's a very fine line she's walking. But, of course, um, you know, even her opponents and her detractors would say that uh, she is a, a formidable leader. <laughs> and, and this is precisely why, um, as Speaker, you know, she has demonstrated um, 
time and time again that that she is is capable of of uh, trying to hold these competing interests together. And so far, anyway, um, it appears to be sort of continuing down this road where it leads and whether or not there are going to be other um, sort of perhaps unpredictable kind of factors that might play into that political calculus. We just don't know right now. But at the moment, anyway, it seems as though Democrats are going to continue on with these investigations uh, and at the moment, anyway, hold off on any kind of impeachment proceedings. That that sounds about right to me, although I suppose in a world where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz can agree on something, <laughs> at least at least on Twitter. Right. That, was a, that was a kind of a Twilight Zone moment there. <laughs> what you, did you think right. of that one? So, right. So for people who missed that and were not on Twitter last night, the uh, way in which legislation uh, appears to be at least the start of perhaps some uh, common ground on legislation was just amazing to behold. So last night, I believe it was, um, there was essentially agreement from two people you would never expect. Uh, you had Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, name is very familiar, I'm sure, to your listeners, and uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are very much on the opposite ends of the political spectrum here. But when it came to this issue of corporate lobbyists and whether or not members of Congress should become should be allowed to become corporate lobbyists when they leave office, there was agreement. Um, you basically had a negotiation or a discussion, I guess, via Twitter, uh, where you had uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that she didn't think that it should be legal at all to become a corporate lobbyist if you served in Congress. She said, you know, at minimum, there should be a long wait period, to which then Senator Cruz responded saying that he agrees. So (laughs) as we were watching this, I remember because as I saw this, I, I thought to myself, this is, is this real? You know, like I checked. <laughs> Seriously, this, right. Yeah, you know, you realize like, is this actually what I'm watching here? Um, but the notion of bipartisan cooperation in this day and age seems so far removed sometimes if you, um, you know, kind of just get caught up in the rhetoric on, on other issues. But then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded saying, uh, if you're serious about a clean bill, meaning just focusing on this, she said, quote, that I'm down, let's make a deal, <laughs> which, is like, which is remarkable and so very 2019, I think. Um, and, and, and so uh, from that, you know, people on Twitter anyway, as I was watching some of the reaction to this, I follow a lot of political reporters on Twitter. And of course, you know, it was sort of like folks were just gobsmacked. You know, like, is this really happening? How can this possibly be? Um, yeah, I was waiting for the, the follow up where it turns out that the link goes right to something on the onion or yes, exactly. you know, something right. like that. It, it, it was just it was so remarkable. Um, and, and I and I thought to myself, uh, you know, this is something we mentioned it on, on um, CBSM last night and and. Uh, but it was still sort of percolating at that time. And so as, as the evening wore on, as you're um, sort of watching this, that's pretty remarkable. So, you know, the question is now, what are we going to actually uh, see come of this? Because now, um, 
you have other folks in Congress saying that they're willing to work on this as well. And um, you bet that the political reporters in Washington are going to be asking <laughs> follow-ups to this and how is this going to work? And, you know, if you were to only sort of listen to rhetoric on other issues, it might seem like an impossible task to have two people so ideologically different as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz coming together. But perhaps, perhaps, perhaps the sign that, uh, in fact, there is some hope of bipartisanship still, even as we get into campaign 2020 here uh, more earnestly, we'll, we'll see. But I think that is one uh, thing that Twitter, and anyway, the folks that I was following, of course, were remarking on and I think is pretty extraordinary considering, um, you know, just how polarized Congress is on on other issues. So we'll see. That's one of those to be continued. We shall see. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely uh, as as astounded by it as as you or anyone. And uh, maybe we'll uh, be lucky enough to have you back to find out if we can, in fact, all really (laughs) get along. That would be kind of cool, right? Yeah, Uh, and I think it's been remarkable, though, because it's it's. so even just the subject, not to go off on a tangent, but the subject of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's use of social media mm-hmm. uh, is very is fascinating to me because uh, it's, a, it's a medium, as you know, that sort of, um, you know, some politicians are not quite sure how to, you know, how to use. How, is, is, it, is it something that uh, is, is helpful? Is it something that is... Uh, elevating the discourse? Is it something that uh, only causes people to just retreat into their corners? I mean, there are a lot of questions, right? And and we know about the use of the misuse of social media, right? With interference with our uh, election in 2016. So, you know, there are a lot of questions surrounding the value of it. And here, I think, is a really interesting example of perhaps, you know, the ability to actually bring people together. And um, I'd be curious about whatever backstory there is to this later on, um, if we do, in fact, see some kind of um, serious movement on this. Um, but it's, just, it's, it's interesting that perhaps this could have been a place that connected people for good, you know. Uh, and in this day and age, you know, just you don't hear those kinds of stories regarding politics and social media pretty much at all. So... If uh, if only everything could be that easy or that pleasant, <laughs> well, then I you know. and I would probably be out of business. But on the yes, other hand, it might be true. it might be kind of nice. So, uh, Elaine Kahana of of CBS News, where can people follow you and watch you uh, and your programs? So we are on CBSN, our twenty four seven digital channel. It's if you go to cbsnews.com slash live, uh, you'll find us there. I'm on. Uh, Every day, Monday through Thursday, is our political program. That's red and blue, and that's on at 5 p.m. And I'm also on Instagram, um, Elaine Quijano. It's Q-U-I-J-A-N-O. Hard to spell. Um, And on Twitter, Elaine underscore Quijano. Perfect. So this has been such a pleasure. I really, really appreciate you taking the time, and we'll, uh, we'll have to have you back again. Thank you so much. I would love that. All right, thank you. It was Elaine Quijano of CBS News, and we're going to take a real quick musical break. Then we have one more awesome guest coming up as we head into the final moments of this edition of Waking Up. Don't go away.
I remember hearing that Bon Jovi song way back at an event that had Governor Andrew Cuomo and Vice President Joe Biden. I'm trying to remember when and where that was, but I think the next guest we have here with us on Waking Up on WBAI may be able to help us out with that. Guy knows a lot about politics and one of my personal favorite reporters. Michael Gormley covers Albany for Newsday. I know him from back when he was covering the state capitol, keeping an eye on those guys up there for the Associated Press. Mike, good to have you on Waking Up. Terrific, Celeste. Great talking to you. I think you're referring to the first time that Biden went to uh, uh, LaGuardia with Cuomo. And I they totally played that. knew you would know this. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally knew it. I was, I'm thinking myself, because that's Cuomo's song, right? That's kind of his thing, right? Yeah, yeah. He, um, it's funny the, the, the way politics can work. He had to sort of shy away from it for a while. He was using his campaign when um, Bon Jovi, if you remember, was talking about moving the Buffalo Bills to Toronto. Oh, that, he had that to stop ain't, using it for a while. Yeah, that ain't that ain't cool. They straighten that out though. <laughs> That's it. Yes, right. Okay. All right. So, so we're we're cool with Bon Jovi. Everything we can we can let him we on the that. on the station. Okay. Cool. All right. So uh, we have a, we're, we're we're I'm a little crunched here, but I wanted to get you in because Cuomo and Biden, the fundraising team here in New York, Trump's turf. What's going on? What are they doing? What does it mean? How aggravated is the president? Well, um, the president is very aggravated, but you know, as you know, in, in in New York State politics, there's always conspiracies behind conspiracies. So, uh, Joe Biden, um, as vice president, gave um, the, the governor, Governor Cuomo, a big boost for um, his his major plans to renovate uh, not just LaGuardia but JFK Airport and several airports around the state, which has become a signature. Uh, legacy project, really, for Governor Cuomo. So they worked together then, and ever since, uh, Cuomo has talked about how Biden is the, the guy Democrats should rally around, because he's, he's the guy who talks about bread-and-butter issues. He's a centrist. Um, but what we've always noticed is every time Governor Cuomo talks about Joe Biden and his accomplishments, they're the same kind of things that Governor Cuomo says about himself. 
So the conspiracy is that if Joe Biden drops out at some point, uh, Governor Cuomo will have helped get the electorate to think about someone like Joe Biden. And that, could, for some people, would be Governor Cuomo. So they, they share a, a lot of sort of center-left ideas, these sort of construction programs, big-picture stuff. They both think LaGuardia is a third-world dump. I believe that's what Biden called it the last time. That's what he called it, and that helped set up the federal funding, yes. Wow, that 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 came out. Uh, that came out conveniently. I thought, but Cuomo is officially for now out of the president business, right? Running for a fourth term, says he's not not uh, going there just now. Yeah, and as you know, as you covered New York so well, um, those those are all true until they're not true. <laughs> um, you know, if there's a draft movement or uh, or at least a perceived draft movement. Um, I think a lot of people around New York think that Governor Cuomo would, would at least explore it um, because, you know, somebody named Cuomo doesn't turn their back on everything. You know, it's like uh, he's not closing any doors. It, and in fairness to the governor, I'm not sure a politician should ever close the door. Yeah, well, that's that's fair. If, if he's if he is called upon by the people to serve his country, I'm sure he would not want to ignore uh, the, the pleas of of the American people. Right. Yeah, and he's also been one of the um, the key and early, well, not so early, but one of the, the, the loudest voices against Trump in the party. So he has that going for him as well. Well, that's that's kind of the whole Cuomo profile, right? Ever since he was a young guy, that he was a guy who was not afraid to get into it with somebody, not afraid to say what he thought or you know, tell somebody what, what a he thought of the, the finer points of their personality or their, their activities or their friends and relatives? Well, you're right. You're right. The governor, as he often, actually, probably too often says, he's a Queens boy. And um, he's, you know, he's a tough fighter. He's a tremendous politician. Um, it's, a, it's a question of whether he can align himself more with the electorate. This is, again, as if he ever decides to, to run uh, for the White House. The electorate would have to be looking for someone someone who's a little bit more centrist, um, because the governor has some uh, criticism back in New York here um, by some progressive leaders, not necessarily progressive voters, but progressive leaders who think that he hasn't gone far enough to the left. And Michael Gormley of Newsday, I I would love to stay on on the Cuomo Biden thing all I really would, but uh, I'm going to jump to one more thing before I let you go. And you've been really cool to share your time with us. Uh, I was looking at something that you wrote about the legislature uh, checking out passing the first law governing artificial intelligence in robots, and this quote about this sort of quasi-terminator scenario uh, from an <laughs> assembly member out of Queens really jumped out at me, said, quote, if someone builds a humanoid that goes out and kills folks, who is responsible? Is the builder responsible? Yeah. Is the programmer responsible? It's not too far from us. Should I, should I be like, Hiding in a closet right now, or like, like, you know, like crawling under this table, or what's up with that? Well, Celeste, you should never be worried about anyone. But um, as far as the rest of us, uh, um, what's interesting here is that this is one of those kind of rare moments where some people in politics are trying to get ahead of an issue. And as you know, politics generally lags behind uh, um, things that are evolving in society. And that's particularly true in New York, where it's a diverse state. Everybody has to have their say. 
Um, this this is an effort that's really trying to well, actually, it's not get ahead of artificial intelligence development, but um, to try to not be any further behind than they are right now. And it turns out that almost every state is behind on this sort of thing. The, the scenario is kind of funny. The, the, the Terminator scenario of uh, you know robots killing people who would be responsible. Um, there really are no laws about that right now. I mean, you, you would certainly be able to convict someone on something like that, but who knows what the, what the law would what the law would be used. But there's a lot of applications. Uh, privacy. There's uh, um, uh, you know who who's who's responsible if an autonomous car gets into an accident. You know some basic stuff. And also, you know, corporate espionage and a bunch of other things that uh, New York State, at least uh, a, a bunch of legislators at this point, are trying to get um, some scientists together to figure out what kind of laws are needed to usher in artificial intelligence. Well, Michael Gormley of Newsday, I can't really think of a cheerier note to end on than that. <laughs> so where should I send people to look for more of your, of your heart-lifting, uh, spirit-warming spirit work? Oh, it's, it's easy. It's at Newsday.com. Perfect. Michael Gormley of Newsday, thanks for joining us here on WBAI. Thanks, Celeste. Take care. So thanks, everybody. We are almost coming up to the top of the hour here. We appreciate you tuning into this special edition of Waking Up. Uh, we were glad to be joined today by uh, Anna Masolia, Jose Martinez, Elaine Quijano, and Michael Gormley, as well as our very own Jeff Simmons. Our associate producer is Alana Levinson. Our engineer is Michael Haskins. And our program director is Linda Perry. Juliana Forlano returns Monday. I'll be back for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons on Thursday. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz.
Apollo Theater, Baltimore Center Stage, and Congo Square Theater Company, in association with the Mosaic Theater Company, presents Twisted Melodies, a Donny Hathaway story. This powerful one-man show is based on the life of 70s soul singer and composer Donny Hathaway. Set to moving music, it is an immersive and engaging play about the brilliant musician who faced deep interpersonal struggles. The music of Donny Hathaway is loved by many, and memories of his creative gifts remain in our hearts. Written by and starring Kelvin Roston Jr., directed by Derek Sanders. The work runs Thursday, May 30th to Sunday, June 2nd. It's a production you won't want to miss. For information, ApolloTheater.org. But we're alone now, and I'm singing the song to you. You are listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, the best radio station you'll ever hear. Listener-supported, commercial-free community radio WBAI in New York at 